I love to watch our choir. Um, you know, a choir can approach worship as one of two things. They can approach it as a performance or they can approach it as an act of worship. And I love to uh, watch folks young and old in our choir just worshiping the Lord. Okay, tonight is the introduction to the next message. In other words, this is a long introduction. I tried to get to the points, I just never got there. So uh, I want us to look tonight at the beginning of a message called When a People Forget God. Judges is not a book that you would turn to for your devotionals or for inspiration. Uh, in fact, it is a depressing book to read because it's kind of like talking to a three-year-old. You know, when are you going to get that you don't do that? Um, it's full of unfaithfulness to God and violence and immorality and false religion. And quite honestly, I get enough of that watching the news. But the truth is we have a lot in common with the book of Judges. Although this book is thousands of years old, follows on the heels of one of the greatest books in all the Bible, this is a book that is as current as what the headlines will read tomorrow in the paper. I think studying Judges teaches us what we need to avoid, what we need to remember, what we need to learn, and what we don't need to forget. If you take a journey from Joshua to Judges, it's like walking in victory and then walking in defeat. I mean, it's just you turn a page and all of a sudden everything changes. It's like in Joshua, you're climbing this mountain where it seems like nothing can stop the people of God and you get to Judges and everything can stop them. There was so much evidence of God's work, so much evidence of God moving. Let me just read Joshua 1 verse 2 just to remind you. And then if you just compare Joshua 1 and Judges 1 and 2, the stark contrast between these books is phenomenal. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you think with that kind of lead-in that the story of Joshua would be downhill. Far from it. The story of Joshua was them accomplishing and taking everything they should have taken under the leadership of Moses but they had rebelled, and because of unbelief, they had wandered in the wilderness. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites. In other words, they were squatters on God's land. And as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you now or forever. God kept his promise. But now turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. 
Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, we've looked at these, and, and uh, in these first few messages, I'm, I'm trying to drive home the fact of how quickly a people can fall away from God. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger so that they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asheroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. The question has to come, how can a people so blessed fall so quick? The better question would be 2,000 years on this side of the cross, how can God's people so blessed be so indifferent to his blessings and to his goodness? God had given them the land. By the way, he had given them the land in perpetuity. They were never supposed to lose the land. There was never supposed to be a captivity. There was never supposed to be defeat. There was never supposed to be bondage. Not that there weren't battles. There were battles in Canaan. There are battles in the victorious life. Canaan is a picture of the victorious life. But they were never to be defeated in bondage. They were never to forsake the covenant and walk away from the things that they had promised at the end of Joshua. They were always to stay with that. And God would have blessed them and God would have protected them. But Judges is a story and a cycle of failure and defeat. Seven times... In the book of Judges, it says the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something that I, I, I didn't catch the first time I read Judges. I probably didn't catch it the 20th time I read it. In fact, it's one of those things that, that kind of like Ron Dunn said sometime, he'd read his Bible and say, who wrote that in in the middle of the night? You know, I've never seen that before. This is one of those. Go to chapter 1, Judges chapter 1 and verse 1. And I want you to see in the context of this failure how great it really is. Judges 1.1, now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, who shall go up first for us among the Canaanites to fight against them? Look, Judges began in a prayer meeting. Did you get it? They inquired of the Lord. They sought the Lord. The book of Judges began in a prayer meeting that God, what do we need to do? Where do we need to go from here? But obviously they quit praying and they quit seeking the Lord and they fell into chaos. What started in a prayer meeting by what we just read in Judges chapter 2 became bondage and spiritual failure. David Jackman, who is an English writer, says, we are not traveling to another planet when we look at the book of Judges. We are simply looking in the mirror. Great statement. While there is much that's similar between us and the time of Judges, they were a theocracy. We are not. But 
one thing is clear, and here's the dangerous thing, is the one, I think, the greatest failure in the life of Joshua. Joshua would be my biblical hero. In fact, when I did a biblical personality profile, uh, my personality profile is off the charts that I'm, I have the personality and the characteristics of Joshua as far as my leadership and, and other things. Sometimes I wish I lived up to it a little better, but, but that, that's the characteristic. But here's where Joshua failed. Joshua failed to name a successor. That's where he failed. Moses had a succession plan. Joshua did not have a succession plan. He failed to name a successor. And the reason for the prayer meeting is Joshua had not groomed someone younger to do after his death what he had done after the death of Moses. He failed to do it. He failed to prepare the people. He failed to prepare a leader. He failed to put a person in position where it would be an automatic, yes, absolutely, of course. That's the person. Joshua failed to have a successor. And so we get a series of judges moving toward the book of Samuel where there's a desire not just to have judges, not even to have a Moses or a Joshua, but we want a king like all the pagan nations have a king. We want somebody just like the world has. This is how far they fell, and you have to lay, although I'm not going to criticize Joshua when I meet him in heaven, you, you have to lay some blame at Joshua's feet where he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, that he didn't go one further and say, and this guy's going to take up where I leave off. A dangerous thing to not plan for what happens when you're gone. Again, David Jackman said, Joshua's death was a watershed in the nation's experience. For the first time since the Exodus, they had no leader. But here's what you need to know about Judges. Judges is not so much a warning to this nation as it is to the church. Remember, Israel had a covenant with God. The church is in a covenant relationship with God. And the church is often guilty of the same things we see in the culture. So Judges is not a book saying, look at what all is going on in the culture. Isn't that bad? Judges is a book to remind us this kind of stuff goes on inside the church. We need to address it. We need to stand against it. Israel needed judges to save them and restore the land. Can I tell you, the church in America needs prophets to call us to repentance and to revival. Now, anytime you use that word, somebody thinks that you're talking about prophecy, about foretelling. But the primary role of a prophet is forthtelling, not foretelling, but forthtelling, to speak the truth about what God says and call people to live up to the truth. That's the role of a prophet. We don't have enough prophets in our land today. We have some people that think they are. And if you send them money, they will do something for you. I'm talking about the kind that speak the truth, and it may cost them money to do that. Now, you can give countless reasons for the failures of judges, but here's the bottom line. They failed to obey God. They didn't listen to God. They did not obey God. They didn't finish the task. They didn't take possession. And what's amazing is they were guaranteed victory. I mean, can you imagine there was no guarantee of victory when we landed on the beaches of Normandy. There's no guarantee of victory in any war we've ever gone into. 
There are days and battles and incidents and moments and, and events and weather and all kind of things that can turn the tide of a war and you can lose it when you think you're going to win it. Here are a people that God had said, write it down, mark it down. No one will be able to stand against you. I mean, they're guaranteed victory if they just followed God. But somehow they began to rationalize. Now, here's what one guy said. One guy said, well, the reason for judges is that their enemies had iron chariots and they didn't. Well, boy, that sounds really spiritual and deep. Except Israel didn't have iron chariots when they walked out of the strongest nation on the world map, Egypt, and went out untouched, unharmed, the army of Egypt swallowed up in the Red Sea. They didn't have any iron chariots in. In fact, they were being chased by iron chariots. Here's what they had. They had the captain of the Lord of hosts. They had God on their side. You know, you don't need an iron chariot if you got God. But if you don't have God, you can have all the iron chariots in the world and you're going to lose. They didn't have iron chariots when they got out of Egypt and that wasn't their problem. Their problem is they didn't realize that God was the source of their power and the, the funnel through which that worked was the funnel and the channel of obedience. That God empowers the obedient. They compromised. They left pagan altars in the land. They entered into alliances with the Canaanites. They intermarried. And, and by the way, here's just one thing. When your enemies become your friends, it's hard to wage war against them. What did they do? They gave their daughters and their sons to Canaanites who brought pagan worship into the house. Let's just add this. Put this little God on the fireplace mantle. Instead of just praying to Jehovah God before we eat, let's also pray to the pagan gods. And they begin to infiltrate. And, and they began to want to be accepted by the very people that God told them to clean out and to kick out. Now, what has that got to do with us? Well, we want the world to like our music. We want the world to think we're cool. We don't want to offend the world by what we say. We want to be able to fit in. You know, we want our pastor to wear skinny jeans. This one is not going to, trust me. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Thank you for the amen. <laughs> I mean, we, we, you know, we want to fit in and everybody's, you know, I mean, we just want to look like the world and sound like the world and feel like the world. And so sometimes in churches, they soften their lyrics. There are churches that have taken any songs about the blood out of their hymn books because they don't want to offend anybody. Hey, guess what? The blood is offensive. It is offensive to a sinner that it took the blood of the Son of God to save us from our sin. That's offensive. Guess what? We were offensive to God. It had to be solved. It had to be settled. It had to be made right. God had to do it through blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And we can water down the gospel, trying to make it acceptable, trying to make it more pleasing, trying to make it more palatable, trying to make it sweeter and nicer. And here's what Israel did. Israel, I think, had the idea, look, we have the covenant, we have the law, we have the sacrifices, we have the tabernacle. There's nobody like us. 
Look at all the advantages we've got. Look at all the blessings we have. Look at all the promises we have. Look at the covenant that we're under. God has told us that he would take care of us, but they forgot that there were conditions for that, and the condition was obedience to the word of God. Now, as the old Scottish gentleman said, I would not harm thee for the world, but I am about to shoot where thou standeth. <laughs> Wouldn't it be easy for us to let our fame and our renown as a church go to our heads? Wouldn't that be easy? You know, when you're standing with somebody in Washington, D.C., and they say, everybody knows about Sherwood. Can I tell you, the devil whispers in your ear and says, yes, they do. And he appeals to pride. And if you don't die to it right there, he'll plant a seed that'll destroy you. It would be easy for us to fall prey, although we have the blessings of God. We have a prayer ministry. We have a school. We have a sports park. We have a movie ministry. We have great worship attendance. We have great music. We've been blessed in so many ways. It would be easy for us to fall and say, Lord, we've got all of this, and then add to it fame or prestige Several of us have been invited to the White House. It'd be easy for us to say, you know, walk around and talk to our friends and say, I've been invited to the White House. The only place you're going is the outhouse. <laughs> Can I tell you something? Nothing about us was good enough to get that invitation. It was God who opened that door, and if we ever forget it, God will shut it. We can't forget that. It would be easy for us to add to our blessings, our popularity. Now, listen to me. I, I'm not, don't hear me wrong. Some, some, I, I tell some people sometimes that I think I come across as the negative nanny about our, our movies, and I'm not because I'm, I'm for what we do. And if you don't know that, you don't know me very well. But it would be easy for us to just spend all our time talking about, you know, we had people from three states and from Canada here this Sunday visiting us, drove all the way here just to see the church that made the movies. What I want to say is, why? We're just average people. We're just a church. I mean, there's nothing special. I mean, what would you expect? Red carpet, glitter, gowns as we walked into, you know. <laughs> As you walked into the church, there she is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did you expect that when you walked in? I mean, we're just folks. I mean, they got to walk away saying, well, I thought it had been bigger than that. I thought it had been snazzier than that. I thought it had been a lot cooler than that. Hey, we're just folks. You know what's amazing? God uses a lot of people that are just folks. Just average, common, B-flat people that just want to be used by God.
It would be easy for us to add to the blessings of God these things that we're getting. It would be easy for us to put something ahead of God. And all of these things can become a challenge to God's sovereign rule over our lives. And we begin to add this or add that or attach this or attach that. And all of a sudden, God is in a battle for first place in our life. Can I tell you something? God is not in first place trying to stay in place. He's king of kings and lord of lords, and he's not interested in any competition. He wants to rule and to reign in our lives. That's why we have to die daily. That's why we have to live in repentance. Now, here's what I know. I I know that Satan's time is short. Hey, if it's a thousand years before Jesus comes back, in light of eternity, Satan's time is short. And I am so glad. I'm ready for him to get a whooping like my daddy used to give me. I just want to be there when he ties that chain around him and throws him down in the pit of hell and goes, nanny, nanny, (laughs) poo-poo. Satan's time is short. Revelation 12, 12. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that his time is short. 2 Timothy 3, 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Fascinating book that you ought to get and read. Uh, David Jeremiah's book, I Never Thought I'd See the Day. I I wish he hadn't stolen that title because it sounds like a great book that I would have loved to have written. But David Jeremiah is a better writer than me, so I'll, I'll leave it to him to do it. He and I, over the years, have had a couple of conversations about what God is doing, and I'm very grateful for his support and for his uh, prayers for us and for the ministries of this church. But he has a chapter in that book called, I Never Thought I'd See the Day When Christians Wouldn't Know They Were in a War. I believe I've seen that day too, where Christians wouldn't know they're in a war. Listen, folks, we are in a war for our own lives. We're in a war for the reputation and the health of this church. We're in a war for our children. We're in a war for the kids that are in Kids Rock right now. We're in a war for the kids whose diapers are being changed right now. And we're in a war for the children that have yet to be born. We're in a war. And this war is not going to end. Now, here's what he says. He talks about the war on terror, which is not a war against a nation. You remember the good old days when you knew who the enemy was? They wore a uniform. You know, you you could say the British are coming. Why? They were all dressed in these bright red uniforms. You know, you knew what the Germans wore. You knew what the Japanese wore. You knew you were in a battle with a nation that was trying to defeat your nation. We're not in that kind of war anymore. We're in a war of ideologies. And we're in a war primarily against not communism, although China has the largest standing army in the world. We're in a war against a radical fundamentalist Islam that is an ideology that wants to destroy everything about life as we know it. In fact, the best statement I ever heard about it was, they want to take us back to the 7th century. 
Now, here's the thing that it amazes me in this country of tolerance and wanting everything to be good. You know, Chick-fil-A gets boycotted for standing for traditional marriage. I don't hear anybody in Hollywood saying Muslims, their law says kill every homosexual. There's no law like that in a Christian life. There's no law like that in God's word. It, it just, but Muslims say kill every homosexual. Where are the liberals crying out for justice for the lesbians and gays who Muslims would kill if they had a chance to do it? Where is it? You're not going to hear it. You're not going to see it. They submit women to demeaning behavior. They treat women as second class, sometimes a dog better than they treat a woman. Women have to walk behind their husbands. They can never walk. My wife always walks behind me because she can't keep up with me. But that's, it's not because I'm making her do it. I could slow down, I guess. But anyway, that's, that's for a series on the family. Uh, but they are demeaning. Women are treated as nothing more than a sex object for the gratification of a man. There's no love involved in it. They can kill their own family members and think nothing of it. Offer up innocent women and children to sacrifice themselves for their cause. We're in a war against an ideology. And the war on terror began, as you know, at 9-11. When uh, the planes struck the Twin Towers and struck the Pentagon and the plane was forced down in Pennsylvania... So a few weeks ago, I went to the hole in the ground where the Twin Towers used to stand. And it's a little hard to comprehend. You see those buildings, and they look like they're about this wide on TV. But when you see the massive hole that is there because of the collapse of the Twin Towers, you realize how many lives were lost, how massive those buildings were that fell and blew out the windows of every building around them for blocks and blocks and blocks. Churches destroyed, businesses destroyed, lives lost. The cloud of soot and asbestos floated over into Brooklyn. They had to clean up the Brooklyn Tabernacle from the things that floated in to that building while they were in the process of building and remodeling their current facility. And then just a few days ago to walk into the American History Museum and to see steel, the steel that held up the Twin Towers. It came from the 73rd floor that literally I could not get my arms around. These solid steel beams that are so wide, two of them twisted and contorted, looked like somebody had taken a paper clip and worked them out that had been found in the rubble of the Twin Towers, identified from the 72nd and 73rd floor. And you realize there are people that hate us. I never thought I'd see the day when Christians didn't know we're in a war. Now, George Bush started the war on terror and got a lot of grief for it. And I'm not here to make a political statement. But the current administration has replaced the war on terror with overseas contingency operation. Can I tell you something? The militant Islamist and Al-Qaeda are not in an overseas contingency operation. They're in a war, and they want to kill us. If they could, they would blow up Olympic Stadium with 70,000 people in it and celebrate in their streets and think nothing of it.
I never thought I'd see the day when we didn't think we were in a war and didn't know we were in a war. Listen to what David Jeremiah says. Biblically and practically speaking, we are in a spiritual war. The Christian spiritual enemy is not in uniform. He does not meet us on an identifiable battlefield. He uses ruthless and unconventional tactics such as deceit, deflection, and disguise. As the Obama administration has done with the war on terror, a large number of pastors and teachers ignore or downplay spiritual warfare to the point that many professing Christians don't even know they're in a war. This puts Christians in serious danger. The church of Jesus Christ needs to know its enemy and his strategies. Above all, Christians need to know how to gain the victory over this enemy. So, to conclude this message, I want to give you the five keys that David Jeremiah gives on summarizing Satan's strategy. Number one, indifference. Indifference. In April 10th, 2009, Barna did a survey. 40,000% of Christians, now listen, 40% of Christians agreed with this statement. Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. I had a professor in seminary that said that, said, I don't believe that Satan is a person. I believe that it's a force. It's a, it's a, air, it's, but it's not a person. That's funny. Jesus met the person of Satan on the Mount of Temptation. I'll go with Jesus, not the guy that thinks he knows better. But 40% of professing Christians don't believe that Satan is a real person. No wonder we're defeated. No wonder we're losing the battle. J.C. Ryle, one of the great preachers of another era, said the saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict and fight in their Christianity. They eat, drink, dress, work, amuse themselves, get money, spend money, go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or twice every week. But of great spiritual warfare, they appear to know nothing at all. Tozer said it this way in the 1950s, no longer does the church see the world as a battleground, but as a playground. Indifference. Secondly, ignorance. Ignorance. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes or his devices. We can't be indifferent to what Satan is trying to do. We can't be Ignorant of what he's trying to do. Thirdly, infiltration. Infiltration. Satan is trying to get a foothold in your life, in your family, in this church. He just looks for a crack, for an opportunity where he can get his will in our lives, where he can get us to compromise, where he can get us to, to bend just a little bit. Infiltration. Paul warned us about this infiltration strategy. That's why we should dress with the armor of God and put on the full armor of God. The list of areas where Satan is allowed in lives of believers is a mile long. I don't have time to go into it. Number four, intervention. Intervention. 
He doesn't have to get us into deep, dark sin. He just has to intervene in our lives and to get us off track. Focusing on non-essentials, lacking priorities, not studying the Word, becoming self-sufficient, reducing our Christianity to a formula, and finally, intimidation, intimidation. 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. In 1745, Charles Edward Stuart was the heir to the throne of Scotland. He wanted to oppose George II, who was the British king, who was arrogant and cruel. Now imagine this, he was a British king, but he only spoke German. And, and so Charles wanted to raise an army in Scotland to defeat the king of England and to take back the throne of Scotland and his people loved him and they went into battle. But in that battle, the Scottish were soundly defeated and his troops were slaughtered. Charles escaped. He made his way to France and spent the rest of his life hoping for a day when he could return and could lead his people to victory and could take the throne of Scotland from a wicked king in England, but it never happened. Charles gave his life to alcohol. He went through numerous marriages. He went through countless numbers of mistresses, and his life was surrounded by shame and by scandal. He never went back. He never led his people again. And over his life, you could write, what could have been? Here's a man who was loved. Here was a man who was followed. Here was a man who should have been the king, who should have led his people. But he went to France and he had a pity party and he gave up and he believed his doubts about what he could do. And his life just went in a downward spiral. I, I think when the people in the book of Judges died, it's not written in the text. This is just my sanctified imagination. I, I think they may have said, what could have been, what should have been, but what wasn't? Because the day came when they forgot that they were in a war. The day comes when we forget that we are in a spiritual war, in a battle. The enemy will have already won. And we will be the book of Judges. And with our children or our grandchildren, there will rise a generation that does not know God nor the works of God. Would you pray with me, please? Would you just pray right now, Lord, help me to see the battle we're in. Help me to know where the enemy is working to defeat me. Pray and ask God to help you that you wouldn't be blindsided. That you would have your armor on, your defenses up, that you would stand ready to do battle with the enemy of your soul. 
Would you pray for your family that they would see and understand that they are in a battle? Would you teach your children and your grandchildren they're in a battle, that the enemy wants to destroy them, wants to defeat them, wants to ruin their testimony, wants to make them like Charles was in Scotland, a wasted life, a what-could-have-been life. Would you pray for those in your Sunday school class and in this church? We would never think that we get a pass or time off from this battle. We are always in a battle. The only way we're going to win is to face the enemy. We cannot win this battle if we're not on our knees, if we're not dressed out in the full armor of God. If we go into battle unprepared or send this next generation into battle unprepared, then we will have failed ourselves and them. Know this, there's a target on you to bring you down because if Satan can bring you down, then it affects a lot of people that you don't even realize right now. I want to ask you, beginning tonight, to increase, please increase the level of praying you do for me and for this staff. Because the devil would love to get into the leadership of this church and to bring shame to this church. Pray for us. Pray for protection. Pray for wisdom, for guidance, for our families. Pray for your Sunday school teacher. You see, we're not only doubly accountable, we're, we're double-sized targets. Because every time somebody in leadership falls, the devil has a round of applause. Pray that we'll stand firm. Pray that as we're moving toward refresh, that God will so stir our hearts that we're ready to attack hell with a water pistol if that's what he tells us to do. You see, folks, we don't have to be afraid of Satan. He is a defeated foe. Fear is his game, but that's not the game God plays. When you fear God, you don't have to fear anything or anybody else. He plays the game of fear with you, but he is a defeated foe. We're not ignorant of his devices. We're not caught off guard by how he works. But if we let our guard down, he will find a way in. Now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. 
And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And while we're standing to sing, I'm going to ask those that need to go to Fellowship Hall to get ready for the fellowship, to get whatever you've got to do. If you brought an ice cream churner, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and slip out. Uh, when we stand, I'm going to ask you to slip out and go get ready for us. But we're going to sing one song together to close this night and this day. So, Father, we come before you a needy people. Our only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Every other piece of armor you have given us is for defense. And we are constantly attacked with the fiery darts and arrows of our enemy. But we are not without defense. And so, Father, I pray that you would raise up in this church soldiers, men and women, young people, children, that are soldiers of the cross, they're soldiers fit for battle, that as the war rages around us, we will stand firm, that retreat would not be anywhere in our vocabulary, that being absent without leave would be beyond our ability to even comprehend. That we would stand until it's time to meet you face to face. Lord, we're not looking for medals of honor. We're not looking for crowns. We're just looking to obey you. What you've called us to do, who you've called us to be. Lord, may it never, ever, ever be said of this pastor, this staff, these deacons, our leadership, this church body, that we were caught flat-footed in the time of battle. May it always be said of us that we were ready. When the clarion call was given, we were ready. And we stood our ground. May we be a church that not just stands our ground, but help us to storm the gates of hell. To be on the offense, not on the defense. To be bold and confident and that the victory has already been won at the cross. That everything that we have to fear was defeated by Jesus at the cross. Death and hell and the grave are all gone. They've lost their sting. They have no power. They have no authority over us. Lord, I am reminded tonight of the great quote of a man of a long past time. Satan fears the weakest Christian on his knees. Lord, our battle is in prayer. And we recommit to you as we move toward refresh and toward these days ahead of uncertain future, but with a certain hope in you that we will war on the floor until victory is ours. We pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together and sing. If you need to leave and go help with a fellow.